This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Oh, right. They just music. <laughs> I was vibing that. That was great. All right, Welcome. Gentlemen. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this conversation, actually. Before we start, though, we always have to tell everybody that, you know, this isn't investment advice of any kind. And if you're going to get investment advice, don't get it from four dudes on YouTube at four <laughs> o'clock on a Friday, probably. I don't know. Maybe it would be brilliant. Maybe it's not. But anyway, that, that's our disclaimer at the beginning. Nothing we say is factual in any way, shape or form. So getting back to being so excited about this because we've got uh, a couple of pretty awesome guests vlad aldea and ross fortune both from atnv energy lp and we're going to talk about electrons and how i mean i actually in talking to you guys i've realized what a miracle the distribution of electrons in such a broad and reliable way is and and the functioning of the market is so incredibly beautiful and robust. I can't wait to dig into it with you guys. I don't know if you've got some thoughts too, Adam, but um, I'm pretty jazzed about this conversation. No, I mean, we tried, we, we tried to, 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 to brief on this over dinner, um, but the wine was too good. The food was too plentiful. <laughs> you uh, got distracted. Yeah. So, so uh, we still sure. did talk for four hours. That's true. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to revisit this in a um, more sober state today so uh, <laughs> and um may i add we rarely have two such uh handsome young fellows on on the podcast oh, God, right? yeah. so, well, look at look at that I, I gotta say that vlad hair <laughs> the hair on the vladster is, it's always perfect like that it doesn't matter what picture it doesn't matter you catch him in the morning you catch him in the evening it's just always perfect it. anyway that is the game respecting game right there with that mustache filter. <laughs> Mike. Uh, okay, yeah. So I actually what I, I felt like Vlad, you had well, Ross, you weren't there, so I'm I'm gonna assume that that uh, Vlad would have played point anyway. But Vlad, when we chatted, you actually had a really good kind of starting place for, for this conversation. I believe it kind of started with your like where you started in your career and that kind of Give us a good idea of how, first of all, 
you started in the energy business and then the kind of roles that you took on and then how you evolved to to start ATNV Energy and, and then what you guys do. So why don't we go right back to the beginning? Mm-hmm. How did you get into this crazy business and, um, and what did you do and how did that evolve? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to do the biography here. Um, and also not to speak for Ross, but our biographies are actually very similar. Um, they overlapped really since the beginning. And so he can pick up and fill in his own details. But our our paths kind of began in the same place. And so um, as I'm going to, to touch on later repeatedly, electricity markets, be they financial, physical, or a mix um, thereof, the the key thing that they have in common is that everything begins with the physical system. And so our careers began at an electric utility where we learned about the physical grid, the transmission aspect of it, the generation aspect. Um, for example, Ross was involved in, um, in doing analysis for merchant generation. And so every electrical system has generation, it has load, and it has um, transmission. Later on, our careers evolved to focus more on the transmission side. But the basis that we got um, working at this electric utility, which was Transalta in in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, really prepared us for being able to fully understand the the electric market bottom up um, from from the nitty gritty, from you know, offer strategies for generators for import and export patterns between the different regions in Western North America, um, the whole lot of it. And we started basically as as grunts on the, as junior analysts on on the trading desk. And for both him and I, that was um, if not the first serious job coming out of university, then you know the the second um, serious job coming out of university. And so we were quite we we're quite green. And the experience there was very much like jumping into the deep end of the pool. It was very fast paced, very very steep learning curve, and very much self driven. Um, you weren't really handed any of the answers. You could absorb them if you were interested, and and you partook in in the people that you sat next to, which. You know, we're a close-knit group, and, and certainly everybody else had um, a very high level of competence and experience. And so I, I have only good things to say about where I began my career and Transalta and that trading floor. It, it gave us such a strong basis later to be able to leverage those early skills and early learnings. Um, after that, things progressed. I had, a, I had a brief stint at Direct Energy. That was a couple of years in Calgary as well. So that was similar thing, um, a merchant trading group that was focused on um, more the load side of things as opposed to generation focused, which is where, where Transalta excelled. And so at Direct Energy, I learned quite a bit more about the hedging aspect of electricity markets. And so that's where load, for example, tries to protect itself from both um, price volatility as well as volume volatility, which is known as swing risk in that market. It has it in common with other commodities. And that's what I want to emphasize here, really, when I speak about some of these particular aspects of electricity, it really does have a lot in common with natural gas, with oil markets. And so a lot of the concepts that we discuss really overlap in those commodities. For those listeners and you guys, that have some understanding of of these other energy commodities, electricity only differs in a few key ways, and it has a lot in common. And so after that, um, we we ended up reuniting, as it were. We both ended up working at Mercuria Energy Trading in Houston. And so Mercuria was um, one of the Swiss um, merchant houses, and uh, and they opened this U.S. operation, and they had, um, again, a very small, tight-knit power trading group, it also included natural gas, 
to an extent. And Ross and I worked there for another few years. And it was from there that I I went to, number one, I, I began the current focus, which I still hold, which is of these um, <clears throat> elements of electricity that I mentioned briefly, which are generation, um, transmission, and and the load side, I ended up focusing a lot on transmission analysis. And so these are basically the connecting pieces between all of the infrastructure. And um, what I learned there where unlike the, call it, uh, the kind of captive business that existed, the natural business, which existed at either on the load side or on the generation side at our previous places of work, at, um, at Mercuria, we didn't have any of these things to rely on at all. There was no generation fleet to dispatch. There was no load to hedge or to offer into the electricity market. Um, there was just um, basically yourself, a computer, your mates, and, and your understanding of the market. And so there, we, we traded only financially. And this financial aspect is something which is really key. Um, it exists in, in several different ways. In the traditional way, it's exactly like the natural gas and, <clears throat> and oil markets. You have swaps and futures and, and these live traded instruments which trade on ICE, the intercontinental exchange. And that's where all of um, financial power trading takes place between counterparties. Um, in addition to that, um, I started focusing specifically on the financial trading that exists within <clears throat> the organized electric markets themselves, which are known as ISOs or independent system operators. And these are the geographic entities, these you know government entities that run the regional grids in the United States. Sometimes they're, they encompass only one state, such as Texas or California or New York. Other times they encompass many states, such as PJM, the largest market um, which encompasses the Eastern Seaboard or MISO, which is the entire Midwest, et cetera. And so it's those um, these organizations which are really critical at this present point of our careers. We we mostly focus our our efforts and our our energies on on those markets. And so they provide financial products to trade as well, of which I'll get into what those are. Um, the most um, well-known one is known as FTRs. These are financial transmission rights. And these are basically point-to-point um, you know, obligations that you acquire in an auction process where you basically bid on, um, on the right to own the congestion revenues between two points. And the ISO auctions these off in order to generate surplus revenues for the transmission owners, which are also part um, of the market, those three critical things that I mentioned. And so at Mercuria, I ended up specializing in this product. I really liked it. I thought it was a, a very interesting niche product that, that put you in, in a lot more control. It allowed you to be a lot more analytical and deliberate in, in the type of trading risk that you took. And I felt very comfortable allocating proprietary capital proprietary capital to this. I felt so comfortable, in fact, that after a couple of years, <clears throat> after two and a half years, I left my employment there and I started ATMV Energy on a, <laughs> a bit of a you know, wing and a prayer, um, literally by myself. And so we that was the, the first and earliest bootstrapping phase of this company, which we've continued now for uh, almost a decade, for nine years, it'll be this year. And so this bootstrapping phase was basically me raising a small amount of, of crazy outside capital, people that were convinced to, to join. I had no independent track record 
you you have to understand, right? It was just basically, I'm leaving my previous employment and would you like to take a chance on me being able to continue some of what I've been doing over there? And some people said yes. And I certainly put all of my money that I had into this venture. I think Ross um, did the same thing. <laughs> and so, yep, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And so we ended up, this bootstrapping process continued shortly after the following year at about a year and a half into it as things um Things were going well. Things were under control. I didn't, I didn't screw anything up at the beginning. And so then I recruited him and we reunited once again um, under the umbrella of where we still work today, ATM Banner GLP. And so I'll take a breather there because I, I went on quite a monologue. Well, just to I give will... you a breath. Yeah, you <laughs> take a breather. There's a lot to digest there as well. I mean, I think um, people have a decent understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think people have a pretty good understanding of what electricity generation is, what electricity transmission is. Um, what's, what's load and what do you talk, what do you mean when you talk about load hedging, just maybe to close a loop on. The right. Yeah, sorry. I threw that one in there unexpectedly. So um, load is the, the exact, um, you know, balancing equation to the other side of the equation to generation. Electricity is being generated by um, power plants, be they thermal, renewable, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those electrons, all of that energy is consumed by various points of load. And so load is the demand side of the electricity equation. We are all load. <laughs> I see. I got gotcha. you. Okay, perfect. Um, so you mentioned that, that electricity is in many ways, like natural gas or, or crude oil, et cetera, um, commodities, but there are a few key differences. What are those major differences? Yeah, so first and foremost, it is not storable. It's not storable in any meaningful way. Um, there, there have always been exceptions to this. We have hydro storage, we have um, pumped storage, there's, there's reservoirs that, that allow you to basically store some of that potential energy. But as a percentage of um, of total consumption, they've they've always represented, you know, single digit percentages. Not not enough to really um, make it comparable to something like natural gas. More recently, batteries have entered into the mix, and so the potential for storage becoming a big thing in electricity is certainly now. It's looking more real than than before. Batteries, of course, are, are different than reservoirs in the sense that they're not long-term storage. They're very short-term storage. We're talking hours, not days or months. And so once again, contrasting that to, to something like natural gas, where you basically pump things into caverns and you can withdraw it years later, um, no, like electricity will likely never have that type of storability. Um, but we are getting more, um, more technologies and more <clears throat> more storage than we've we've ever had before and so that's a primary difference um the other difference and and this you can i don't know if such a big difference in natural gas without getting too much into the nitty-gritty of things um reactive power and electrons and all these things like when when a generator puts um energy onto the grid it kind of just goes everywhere and so this idea of point to point these are accounting abstractions and the same thing happens in oil for example just because you take um a certain number of barrels out at the other end of the pipe it doesn't mean that those were your barrels that you injected um at at the source point. They're just some barrels, they're fungible, and electrons in that sense are just as fungible. Um, and the rest on top of it is just accounting. 
And, and yeah, you also is. mentioned transmission rights and things like that, and and the um, the reasons why they would um, auction them off and things like that. Um, of course, yeah. And so that one we can spend most of our our time talking about because that's what Ross and I really focus on. And so going back to that that transmission element of um, of what makes up the electricity markets and the grid transmission is is really a critical thing right like if you're if you're generating it at point a and consuming it at point b um, how does it get there and so transmission is is by far the most critical element really and um, going back to how the markets are organized and and the abstractions like i mentioned there's there's a lot of accounting that kind of sits on top of everything to make things make sense but underneath that, there's a there's a physical logic to it all. So um, transmission lines are usually owned either by a mix of private and public entities, and they're under the control of the system operator, these nonprofit state-level organizations that dispatch the grid. They're responsible first and foremost for reliability, but they also serve this really important function of, um, you know, essentially doing all of the... Ross, over to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do all the accounting, I think is where Vlad was gonna go with that. <laughs> so they're balancing it out between all the counterparties. Um yeah. So I'm not sure uh, entirely which way Vlad was gonna go with that, <laughs> but I assume that's what it was gonna do. Is they balance out all the flow of the, the molecules on the grid. So you have all the stakeholders in the grid, um, and you have the physical flow, and they're the ones that balance it out. That's the important function that they serve. Gotcha. Vlad, thanks for giving Ross a chance to chime in, buddy. <laughs> he, um, he knows the story as well as I do. The um, uh, Yeah, so um, I, the FTRs, sorry, the ISOs control uh, the accounting on the grid, and one of their, their major instruments to do that is, are these FTRs? Yes. And so regarding transmission, so they do all the accounting, all the load pays the ISO, and then the ISO pays all the generators, and then the transmission owners are paid as well. And going back to transmission and, and this idea that you have a certain amount of capacity across the transmission system, well, that capacity is physically rated. It's like a pipeline. There's um, a certain amount of bandwidth that, that it can accommodate. And so they try to maximize the usage of the transmission system within its physical specifications. And um, this usage is both physical and financial accounting, let, let's call it. And in that accounting sense, if there's excess capacity that's not being used, they devise the mechanism, which is an auction mechanism in which um, this excess available capacity, call it, know, it could be in the tens of percentages, just to give you a sense for, for how much is left over that otherwise would be would be wasted. It would not be used. And so they devised this method, this financial instrument of basically auctioning off the excess capacity to anyone interested to participate, including financial only participants, call them FTR traders such as ourselves. And by that, they raise significant revenue that then goes to the transmission owners. And what we get in return is we get, you know, something that for us has a positive expectation of, of generating revenue. Um, it doesn't always work out that way. And so we can get into those details, but we certainly do all of the due diligence, apply all of the analysis that, that we've been honing for years um, to try to acquire things at a good price, at a fair price in this auction mechanism to then be able to hopefully in the future recoup 
those costs and then some extra revenues on top. I think it would be helpful to um, maybe put this into context by offering an example. Can you, is it possible for you to sort of give us an example of where there was an FTR auction or a series of them? I don't know. Um, you guys did some analysis. You determined that there was a great trade in one direction or the other. And, you know, how that thought process evolved and then how the trade actually manifested? Yeah, so that one is actually, um, that's a very good one to Ross here. Um, not to put him on the spot, but um, we have some great examples of that in Texas, where in years past, there have been very uniquely identifiable patterns that he was able to um, to identify and to trade as such. Yeah, so ERCOT, ERCOT's the name for the Texas um, system. That's the ISO name. And basically, um, it covers most of Texas. And Texas is interesting because it's a very isolated grid. It's not interconnected uh, to the other grids in the U.S. So it's a good, it's a good uh, example analysis uh, because things that happen there tend to be very independent to Texas. You don't have outside influences uh, pushing them. And most of Texas is a weather-driven event. And then generation mix. And Texas is an interesting grid because it had one of the largest ramp-up in renewable power in the last 10, 15 years out of any ISO. So you always think, you know, oil pumping, natural gas, sort of that sort of thing in Texas, but it's actually probably one of the most green grids we have in North America. And it's a very, it's a really cool grid to analyze from a power market. So probably one of the more famous trades there. And so the auctions there, we can trade up to three years out and those auctions occur every six months. And then you have a monthly auction, prompt month auction. So yesterday was the close for, say, May 2023. So just completed that. And what you do is you have a lot more transmission outage data, a bit more confidence in the weather, a bit more confidence in all the other elements going into the grid on the monthly data. So you're probably going to be a bit more comfortable spending more money, pushing more chips in on the prompt month auctions than you would in the long-term auctions, for example, depending on your trading approach. So every company has a different style. You know, there's over, I probably in the FTR space in ERCOT, there's probably up to 125, 150 participants now, I would say, companies, individual entities. And so everyone has a different style and approach. Um, results are public in these markets. So you can see what everyone else is doing. That's another mm -hmm. unique feature uh, of these markets. And so one of the trades, I would say, go back to one of the most famous ones in ERCOT history was the Panhandle trade, which was in far west texas uh northwest texas there's the panhandle there and they did a massive build out of wind in that region with very limited transmission build out at the same time and it was a very appealing area from a geography topology standpoint to install the wind because it has some of the highest uh capacity factors for wind in the country but it also they it if you've ever been to West Texas, there's not a lot out there. <laughs> so they didn't build the transmission. They didn't do anything to pair with it. So they, a famous constraint was called the panhandle constraint, which basically made that region go negative, zero to negative pricing. So the generators actually had to pay to put their electricity onto the grid. And that was, uh, that was, and, and the only reason that worked for the generators was that they were on uh, various tax credits where they could actually produce electricity at a negative price but receive positive revenue either through hedging or through government mm -hmm. subsidies 
So it's a really cool play from a power standpoint if you're trading the financials because theoretically it wouldn't normally make sense for someone to pay to use your product, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so that that was a really famous one. It it went on for a number. It's still occurring now in the market, but it's been priced in. Uh, But I would say I think we're going back six or seven years now probably was the first instances of it. And then it's been really, it got really strong probably for a good four or five years after that. It's winding down now. They're starting to, the, the, the physical support in the system is being built out. So it still pops, it rears its head. But that's one of the most famous trades in Texas, one example. So th- prior to that event happening, you would look at the, you, you get a transmission queue. So you see all the projects that have been approved by or caught. So you look at the projects, you look at where they're being installed. You say, wait a minute, there's 4,000 gigawatts of wind being installed in an area that only has 1,500 megawatts of transmission, for example. That's an extreme case, but that's pretty much what happened. And you go, are, are they planning on installing any transmission? And then you look at the transmission queue and you say, they're, they're about five years out on doing anything about mm-hmm. this. And then you go, okay, this seems like an opportunity. And so, yeah, Um I, I didn't do enough volume of that trade. <laughs> I would we would be having this conversation if I did enough volume. Of well on it, but it was like one of those like that was one of the um, that was one of the like retirement trades that one, yeah. if you really caught it if you did well. We would have been speaking did. to you from your um, large retirement yacht yeah. in the middle of the Mediterranean. It would be the yacht. Yeah, the, the well, camera yeah, would be. We, right we'd now. be we'd yeah. be speaking to you in a in, in the Caribbean somewhere. Wait. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that trade—that trade was interesting too, because this goes with um, with with asset allocation and risk management. At the time, the company was in its infancy. So, if I was at Mercuria, probably where we had you know hundreds of millions of dollars to draw from just on the power desk alone, um, you know, it, you probably would look at that trade and you'd say, okay, whatever, we're going to commit tens of millions to this trade. At ATMB, we were in our infancy, so there was a limited amount of capital and a limited percentage of capital from each book we were willing to commit to it, and we did extremely well for it. It was one of the foundational trades that helped the company grow, but it, it, it also, um, you know, you have to manage within the book that you're given as well. That's just one of the broader rules well, of trading. I, I, think, I think that's the, the old and bold traders. There's old traders. Yeah. <laughs> And there's bold traders, yeah. <laughs> but there's not old bold traders. So no, absolutely. So so you, you hit on a point that we chatted about that I thought was really interesting. And this this intersection of looking at the project development and some of the other things in on maintenance, I think you guys were talking about too. Just sort of simple right. uh maybe dig into that because again, I'm I'm sort of remember this, but I thought this was a really interesting arb that you, you know that you're looking at and saying well this th- these things aren't going to match so we're going to have a mismatch here and so let's go in uh, and provide some capital for this mismatch yeah you can call it arb i think it's just analysis like the the thing with the market is it's easy to get caught i think and especially with some of the more i can't speak for other shops but what i've seen from more inexperienced traders in the market mm-hmm. is they they're they're very hung up on the the digital aspect the trading of the market itself but behind everything in power trading, it's very physical. It's it's a physically driven. There is physical generators there, and and the storage component is the key component. So imagine in an I mean it's almost impossible to imagine, but imagine in oil or gas trading, there's only instantaneous uh, supply and demand on a pipeline. So imagine there's an interruption at any stage in that. What does the price go? You've seen in. Uh, 
isolated gas pipeline markets, what happens, say, Algonquin or recently in California, what happens when you just slightly isolate a gas market? The prices go completely, um, you know, unhinged. And so in power, we have this volatility that is really, really hard to be modeled. And it's all down to physical scarcity and instantaneous supply and demand. And so what we try to do is there's so many different ways to trade power markets. So you can trade blocks, you can trade monthly products, you can trade, you know, six month annual stretches. So you have to figure out where the risk is because in, in some of the best opportunity is very, very short term in these instantaneous pops in the market. So you're looking at, you know, a seven gig wind drop in the ERCOT power market. So you're just looking at suddenly a cold front comes in, something happens and all of the renewable gen in the West Texas drops off the grid. You are probably going to see a price event happen in the market in that case, depending on some of the other factors. You're certainly probably going to see some congestion. So you have to figure out, you're not going to trade that in a monthly CRR product. You're going to trade that in a cash product. So would that also flow through to some of the nat gas stuff you're talking about? So you see this renewable drop and and now there's going to be a heavy consumption somewhere else and some other transmission line. Absolutely. And so you always have to be aware of those components. Where is natural gas? Where is the shelf? Like where is the input? Um, You you know, what, what is the next resource? What or sorry, I guess in power, it's what's the last resource to be dispatched to meet the equilibrium of supply and demand. And so if you think you're on, natural gas, then you have to figure out, you know, your various spark spreads, you have to figure out what natural gas prices are, all that sort of thing. So a year ago, when natural gas prices were quite high, you just naturally had a blowout in volatility in the market, from the standpoint that now your input price of natural gas is so much higher, and that's a multiplier to power. You know, uh, your heat rates in power range from, you know, five and a half to 15. So you're multiplying the natural gas price by... He's, yeah, so he's dropping a lot of things. Really no, I love it. No, I love it. I love it. But I want to know what it is too. <laughs> so that's your input price. So so uh, natural gas power plant. It's um, basically the the cost to produce the electricity. So it's your 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 natural gas price times the heat rate of the plant, the efficiency of the plant. It, efficiency. Call it your conversion efficiency. ratio yeah. of fuel into electricity. Yeah. So if it's a 10 heat rate and it's $5 natural gas, it's $50 a megawatt hour to produce your electricity. So if natural gas prices are $2 or natural gas prices are $8, you see there's a, the spread suddenly in the electricity prices really widens out. So it's a natural, and then, you know, the same goes for coal, the same goes for uh, nuclear, I guess, is a little bit more um, base loaded. But, you know, those, so natural gas would be historically the most important, significant thing for power markets in terms of, because usually it's the marginal unit, it's the thing that sets the price in the market. Um, and then when you get into scarcity pricing, all bets are off. So you're talking about a daily volatility. I can speak to ERCOT, you, you, you know, recently in winter storm URI, we sat at $9,000 a megawatt hour for multiple hour, for multiple days, uh, which is why that was uh, such a major event and a crisis. The average price of power in the market is probably these days around $25 a megawatt hour. Uh, you know, Some so elasticity. when you're sitting at $9,000, that's pretty bad, right? <laughs> so that's concerning. This is really you lost, you lost your house. You lost your house to heat it. Yeah. And so, um, so this is the volatility in the market. I would say the average range of volatility, that's the most extreme event we've ever seen in the market. You know, but in summertime, it's, it's not uncommon to see 
$1,000 to $5,000 prices, um, you know, and you going from low teens in the morning to triple digit, four digit prices in the afternoon. That's These not uncommon. So hourly prices. And so you're seeing this volatility um, in the market all the time. So, you know, not to move on to other things, but you know, when I, when you talk to old crypto traders or they're all young, but crypto traders <laughs> are like, oh, I have a volatile market. I'm like, have you ever traded electricity before? Like this was crypto before crypto, like the volatility <laughs> in this market is so much more extreme. Um, and it's on a daily basis. So you have to pick what volatility you think is going to happen and why. So fundamentals, what fundamentals are driving it? Are these short-term fundamentals or these long-term fundamentals? And then you have a number of products you can pair with that and you match the best product with the volatility that you're seeing. So Panhandle, for example, there was a cash trading opportunity when it first started coming in, but really that was more of a long-term opportunity. That was a structural spread issue in the market that was going to exist for a number of years. And if you were there early enough and the long-term auctions trading it um, and buying it for two years out at a, at a very cheap price, you would have done extremely well. And just because it's a structural issue that was going to happen and it was unavoidable. And so, and that was just adding up all the physical factors and then pairing it with the best product to trade. On that point, it's a very important distinction. Um, I I emphasized here the spread definition. And so Ross mentioned that we have um, a variety of different products at our disposal, including these purely financial, aka um, cash spot products that trade on ice, similar to the way that you trade near-term natural gas. Um, futures. We have that available in power as well. And sometimes we do dabble in it. But our preference by far is to focus on a spread product. This idea that we feel much more strongly about the relationship between point A to B than we do about the overall energy level in the market. Yeah. We prefer relative relationships. So this ERCOT example is a very relevant one. We can work with this one because it really clarifies what I'm trying to say. So let's say, for example, that you have this cold front and you expect tomorrow that wind is going to drop severely over the course of the day. Some of this is already going to be modeled significantly in the day ahead market. The day ahead market is what the ISO runs every day. It's our forward financial market for one day into the future. And a lot of very sophisticated modeling goes into that, both from participants, physical participants, that is, financial participants, and the ISO itself. They have the best forecasting methodologies to predict how quickly is that wind drop um, going to occur. No one, absolutely no one is going to be caught by surprise by the wind drop. We're all seeing it. We're all expecting it. And sometimes maybe drops faster, maybe drops slower. Um, and maybe if it drops really fast, prices are going to spike. But that that's a very uncertain type of risk. That's not a risk that we have an edge in because we're not meteorologists. We're not professional wind forecasters. And so this idea that tomorrow looks like it could be a very volatile day. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And so you can financially acquire a long, oops, sorry. You can financially acquire a long position into that event, but in, without risk appetite, this, this thing about old and bold traders, like we'd rather be old um, than, than bold <laughs> because you don't get to become old. Um, the, 
the idea is that we try to focus then on more risk-adjusted returns. And so wind in, in ERCOT, for example, signifies a geographic spread between the region that contains that wind generation and the region which consumes that electricity. And so you then get to look at a different type of risk. You get to say, <clears throat> okay, we're, we're pricing this in at um, you know, $20 for tomorrow. And if everything completely does not meet our expectations, um, what's the worst case here? Um, let's say that the worst case is ten dollars. So my downside is ten. Our downside is ten dollars. But if everything really um, manifests like the wind does, you know, something quirky, it's not priced in real time is a wild card. So real time is is what these products ultimately settle against, what I'm describing here in short-term ISO products. So what happens in the five-minute, um, they're not just hourly, they're actually five-minute prices that then get aggregated into hourly prices. And so um, if that really fulfills its potential, let's say the upside is $50. Um, and, and that's how we try to formulate more specific, attractive, risk-adjusted bets to conceive something that has a downside of $10 and an upside of $50 is much more interesting to us than hoping that tomorrow maybe everything goes crazy and uh, it ends up being $1,000 for three hours. Um, one is a lot more quantifiable than, than the other, and we, we like those types of things. Yeah. So, in ERCOT, so, so you have broader zones in ERCOT that you can trade. So you can trade you know, Houston to north, north to Houston, south to Houston West and there's central nodes, uh, San Antonio and Austin, but also there's about 800 other nodes, individual nodes that can be traded. So you can technically pair almost every one of those nodes to another node in the market at any point in time. Um, there's some natural elimination you should do to never put certain things to others just from a historical risk standpoint, but you have the flexibility to basically take any one of these buses, load nodes, um, generator nodes, like there, there, there are various physical reasons that they exist on the grid, but these are why they exist is, and then they're all tradable. Um, and so you can trade them long-term, short-term, um, and you can get very creative. Uh, and with each, the more I think nuanced you get with how you trade, the more risk exists within the trade because you're, you're exposed to individual volatility at a, at a generator level or at the individual load level. Whereas if you zoom out into a zone, you're aggregating a number of points into the price. So it depends how you want to trade. But the fact that you have tens of thousands of options of how to execute or submit or create trades is what also makes it an interesting market. Um, and there's ways to trade um, a long bias. There's people that trade short bias. So they're actually mm -hmm. trying to sell volatility all the time in the market. That's a historical one that I've seen. And... Um, I'm not going to talk anyone out if they want to. I'm just saying I don't ever do that. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've had a 15-year career, so... <laughs> you mean, you mean you know, short, short vol is a career ender? Yeah, exactly. Right? Short vol in power markets. Yeah, um, it's, it's, a pretty it's, bad pretty, one. it's so, the same in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people like to coupon clip, right? So it's... Um, mm. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different nuance to it. And uh, again, like Vlad brought up, like the other main component that keeps these markets so interesting and so exciting is weather. So much of it is weather. And even the best meteorologists cannot predict six months in the future weather. You can have averages, you can have expectations, but you know, the biggest events that have happened in all most of these markets are weather related. And predictable 
in the sense that maybe a week in advance you started to see it come together. But um, Winter Storm Yuri and ERCOT, no one saw that coming. No one had that priced in. Um, you know. So is it is it generally then could, could a trader say, well, you know, generally speaking, or is it priced in that generally speaking this season has these events and I would like to buy over many years this season? Do I get paid on that or or is it like do I lose a lot and then win one big one? How, how is the payout structure on these types of things? Let me say a little bit and then Ross can get yeah. into the specifics here because there's some <laughs> great examples there in ERCOT mm-hmm. as well. I know um, Adam and I uh, touched on this a little bit. So, yeah, we have a lot of seasonality in power. Um, we have daily seasonality, hourly seasonality, monthly seasonality. It's all about seasonality. And so when you have what we call predictable seasonality, you have a lot of built-in expectations. And so things that pertain, for example, to the demand side of things, such as weather forecasts months into the future, like Ross just said, nobody knows. Um, it's, it's not knowable. Um, you have historical averages. You have bands of outcomes. You know what is high, what is low, and that's about it. Um, on the generation side of things, it's more complex still. Um, when you're talking about maintenance seasonality, um, generation is is perhaps a bit more tangible, a bit more predictable. You can you can form some better metrics around it, and there's services, um, there's public data services to aid you in that. Um, transmission is the one that's really quirky. That's the one that we actually focus on the most. Um, like I mentioned, that when when I was first describing what our focus is. So transmission has its own seasonality, which is broadly Mm. informed. It's broadly useful to know during which months it will occur. But within that, there's a lot of um, discrepancies, a lot of changes in particular. And so, yeah, to to simply buy in in a long-term manner that which is expected does not make you money, nor not in electricity, not in anything. Um, yeah. By definition, even though our market is not as super competitive as something like equities, but expectations are priced in. And so the nuance comes from, okay, um, I, I mentioned one of the really key things for us is take, for example, a live two-way market like like equities you have a constant price for an instrument, which is always there. You always know what is the sum of market participant expectations. And it's a two-way continuous auction, right? There's always um, people jockeying for being the best offer. And there's opposing people jockeying for being the best bid all the time. Um, and so that, that makes it, I call it a two-way auction. Our markets don't really work that way. Um, what we have is a one-way auction, a one-sided auction in mm. which the ISO kind of, you know, they they are the offer, if you if you will. They're standing offer, and it's not a it's not really a dynamic offer. It's dynamic in the sense that they run these very specific simulations, which produce usually very very accurate pricing. But on the other side, from our standpoint, from the participants that are looking to bid, um, you have basically, you have the utmost control as to what you bid. 
And the bidding, as much as it is happening concurrently, it's blind. We don't see what the other participants are doing in real time. We simply submit our best bid. They submit their best bid. I apologize for the background noise here. There's some city noise. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and the resulting auction clearing price is that which stands. That's the one that sets the price for everyone. And so if you were competitive, you're awarded something. If you weren't competitive, you're awarded nothing. And so... That really is, is what we focus on, this bidding strategy, this how do you buy the thing that you want at the right price, um, at an attractive price that gives you a positive expected risk return, uh, risk reward. That's the real finesse. That's kind of like the art in the process. The science in the process is in, is in identifying these types of opportunities, be they um, demand-driven or transmission-driven, or this idea of geographic, um, call it fragility that Ross described, in which a particular region is overbuilt or under um, transmission, under service yeah, by sure. transmission. And so yeah. um, that that's the, the science-y part. The art part is this idea of uh, what are they? Th what am I thinking that they're thinking that I'm thinking? How do I bid competitively, knowing that we get pretty much one shot at this? Um, sometimes we get multiple shots, but uh, but things quickly can become very efficient. If something does clear in in this auction format inefficiently, the market jumps all over it in the next sequence. Yes, I love it. it's Princess Bride all over again. <laughs> I, I, we got somebody. We've got somebody here asking: Are they open to investors? I guess that's a question for me. Oh, there's a, there's a question: Are they open to investors? Um, good question. So, as I mentioned, from the history of the company, we we've been bootstrapped um, basically since the get go. What that means is we've been reinvesting our our earnings back into the company since its um, since its inception, and we continue to do that um, to. To this date, we're, we're basically, call it trader-owned, um, employee-owned, if you will. We're, for being capitalists, we're actually pretty communist. It's like a cooperative. <laughs> I wouldn't go that yeah. far, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's unusual, right? You want and us so to share the goose that has the golden eggs? I don't know. Let me explain. Let me explain the reasons, because it's not, there isn't, there's not a dearth of capital seeking deployment in this space. Um, if anything, there's a surplus of capital um, trying to deploy into the space. What really sets this space apart, this product, these call it ISO financial products, apart from other things, other commodities even, is that we're limited significantly by scale. I mentioned at the beginning that the very things that we're bidding on are treated like surplus capacity. And so we, we don't have this um, inherent leverage which exists in traditional financial instruments where you're involved in a zero-sum game against competitors, where in derivatives you can have an infinite open interest. In our markets, by definition, we cannot have infinite open interest or even very large open interest. We can only have as much open interest as there is physical capacity to be auctioned off. And, gotcha, and so this, yeah. this is a key limiting yeah, factor but, to the space. Yeah. And so what we've done to kind of accommodate that, though, is we've expanded into other geographic markets. And so we had our areas of expertise to start with, which was California ISO and Texas. 
And then we've expanded to New York, uh, Midwest ISO, um, and we still have a large open area in PJM that we're exploring as well, and um, SPP. So there's there's plenty of markets. Some of them haven't are, are harder. How can I put it? The, the rules are different because you have to remember it's not just the physical transmission of the market. It's the regulators and the rules of each market can be so different that you might be an expert in the Texas power grid. You go look at TGM and it's just like you're learning a completely new language. Um, and it's important to know the history of the markets. It's important to know the nuance of the markets. It's important to know the landmines. We've all traded multiple, multiple ISOs. We've traded, you know, I've traded Alberta mid-sea, which is the Pacific Northwest. I've traded Midwest ISO. I've traded SPP. I've traded all of them and I've found the market that suits me the best, that I'm able to deploy the best risk and understand the best, which is ERCOT. Um, and I've traded even within that market. I know there's traders that just trade screen on ice. They only trade the Balde product. That's a huge, that's a huge financial market. Correct. It's Balde PJM and Balde ERCOT. If, if for a lo- most of the conversations people have with power traders, I think that's where a lot of the speculative guys are focusing their energy, time, and money. And those are really... Directional, directional price trading, which not I would be, I would be so gray. I would be, <laughs> yeah, a, and that's it's very stressful. That's one where you're, you're glued, you're chained to your desk for eight, 10 hours a day, you'd say. So, and you have days like, and that's a two-way market. So you're nice and you're in a two-way market and you're, you're trading hub north typically. That's the most, and you have days, volatile summer days where ERCOT, to answer your question, Mike, about seasonality. So in Texas, you tend to, I tend mm-hmm. to see the market being more spread focused for almost all the year, except for the summer. They enter into a, what they call the reliability window where they reduce outages. They reduce transmission work on purpose for reliability over the summer. Cause that's when Texas, the load, the system demand peaks. <clears throat> so they like to keep all resources available. So spreads tend to not be as, as, available or is typical throughout the summer. We also have wind dying down as well in the summertime seasonally. So what happens is people tend to focus more on directional trading in Texas in the summer. Mm -hmm. And imagine trading your Valde product and you come in and someone's got a two-way set up at, you know, 150 at 250, uh, like 150 at 250. And then it starts focusing in, say it trades 200. Then the next gap up is to 250 again. Now it's 300. Now it's trading 175. These are the gaps that it goes through in the market in the day. And, you know, like it's it's all based on dispatch. It's all based on people maybe expecting like a cold front to come in, not come in, wind, a little bit of wind coming in because the margins are so tight. So on that screen trading, like to me, that is a great way to, you don't have to be bold, but you're not getting old if you're a Valde trader. Like it, it's... <laughs> No, and so that's a great example. The numbers that Ross used, those are very real numbers. You can have two trades, two consecutive trades minutes apart that are 30% different in price. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, I guess that that is that is selling a perishable product that perishes in minutes. Right? That's I, it. I mean, and you, that, you that's are, the instantaneous supply and demand. Yeah. There's a yeah. really interesting question, and I, I actually don't understand the acronyms. And we we mentioned the, the PJM, but it's by John Weir. Ani, if you could flash this up, because I'm not. Maybe you guys can comment on this. Maybe you can't. But the PJM PAI event from December and its two billion in penalties might be of interest. Uh, um, is that ring a bell for you guys? Or, or good question. So really. 
I'm only vaguely familiar with it. Like Ross mentioned, we don't actively trade PJM right now, and we certainly don't we don't watch it so closely that I would be able to comment on the magnitude okay. of those things. Um, I, I can speak generally to this idea that when we do have an extreme weather event in one of the regions, in one of the organized ISO markets, that um, the fallout and its implications, like, like Ross mentioned, um, the rules in each market and the way that each market handles these extreme events is very different. California is distinct from Texas, distinct from PJM, et cetera. And so um, I only feel comfortable really speaking to the markets that we're actively involved in and how things played out. Um, Texas, for example, is perhaps more, more laissez-faire in this regard insofar that they're <clears throat> they would just let the market outcomes stand. But even there, like we can go into the details. We, we almost had a market failure in yeah. um, one really critical role to explain that these markets serve is they're not just, um, you know, doing accounting and physical reliability. They're serving in, in the exact same way that um, let's use ICE or let's use um, CME, whatever commodity exchanges you guys are familiar with. Um, these are clearing houses, right? Clearing houses are, um, are um, accumulation of members which are financially mutually responsible for the other members should one fail. The ISO is the same thing. If a financial member or a physical member should fail, the other members are responsible for the shortfall there. And so we have counterparty credit risk. We have um, actually significant embedded counterparty credit risk, which has been pushed in, in almost every market they've They've had some kind of a yeah. blow up along these lines. In in Texas, of course, what happened during Winter Storm Uri, which um, you know m- maybe this is a good parallel to this um, this PJM event where they had reliability issues. Um, physical everything failed. Physical generation failed, and ultimately, load serving entities that also had generation ended up having to declare bankruptcy because the the economic impacts were so large, and that affected all of us. Um, we, even as a separate class of participant, ended up having to pay significant amounts into the clearinghouse in order to keep the market whole. Yeah. That was well, maybe that, that's, that was, that was, <laughs> that that's was an interesting point. point because I think, I, you, Vlad, you and I had this discussion generally on what it takes to become a member of this, of this group of people that is actually allowed to trade in in this way I, I i recall sort of something like that yeah and and maybe you could kind of walk through that a little bit for folks to understand what it like as a member you, you you're kind of beholden to these issues that you're talking about and, and what it took to kind of get there and and you're actually very thoughtful about why you exist and that you're <laughs> at at, at at the behest of this market as a participant, it's sort of a something to be, I guess, thankful for or, or grateful for a little bit. I don't know how to put it actually, but do you, do you sort of recall okay. what I'm talking about or not? Not really. Is that is that yeah, too many yeah. cigars and too too deep in the night? Can I no. give Can I give just a Winter Storm Yuri an example for for the physical guys? So Winter Storm Yuri was a purely physical failure of the market that transpired in the price that the actual clearing of the market as well but the storm knocked out gas lines it knocked out power plants it froze all the water so the cooling ponds so it was a physically driven event right theoretically 
if you were one of the load serving entities and you were able to in advance or properly acquire financial contracts to hedge your power properly, you might have gotten through it unscathed. Many of them were actually paying customers to leave their network. They were writing two days before. They were saying, we will pay you $500 if you leave and go with someone else. Like two days before the event, knowing what was going to happen and knowing that they no longer had the ability to hedge. And so this speaks to the reason why these markets exist. There's there's this, if someone else wants to take the risk of the short side, maybe it's not a generator, maybe it's a speculator not dissimilar to us that says, I don't think it's going to be that cold. So I'm going to sell $1,500 power to you, uh, not realizing it was going to settle $9,000 for three days but, or four days. But you know what I mean? So this speaks to, again, the reason these markets exist. There's only so much physically the market can bear. And you have to go to these other parties, this liquidity, in order to, to, to operate efficiently in the market. And generally speaking, these markets operate far more efficiently than the old, um, you know, monopoly, oligopoly generator system that we had before, the regulated systems we had before. There was no incentive to operate efficiently. There was no incentive to operate cost effective. You got a guaranteed percentage. Price signals. Typically from the prices from the government. So your idea was if I operate the most expensive, highest price plant, I then got the highest percentage on top of my power prices. You know, that's certainly how Alberta used to operate. <laughs> so, that's, that's how that's how we operate on this island, I think. Yeah, uh, it's definitely yeah. how it came Cost plus, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pass on to the consumer plus plus. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So Michael, anyways, that not to interject, but that was just my thoughts on Yuri specifically. Why, why, where the markets could have saved. It hurt some people that were short, but it could have saved some of the physical generators that were able to acquire and hedge properly ahead of the event. Yeah. Right. Vlad, you're going to say something. Yeah, let me see if I can if I can answer your point there, Mike. If I can speak to what you're saying, yeah the the rules are are really the nitty gritty in in these markets, and so I I've kind of made it clear to to my guys to to the traders that work for for our company that um, we've had this discussion on on so many occasions. It's not just about you know doing the right thing, um, treating the market with respect within the letter of the rules that are set out for us, which I mentioned are complex, they're ever-changing, and they're different in every region. And so just staying on top of that is is a full-time job. But <clears throat> also the spirit of those rules, um, to not be jackasses, to, to act within what is rational economic interest, to do things that are justifiable logically, economically, to never engage in, in behaviors. And, uh, and in fact, there's, there's many examples um, in, the, in the public literature. It's, um, it's one of these markets which is so complex that people sometimes take a focus which is overly focused on the rules. Um, and there's, there's famous examples of cases that have been litigated. Um, the regulator, which oversees um, ISOs, is called FERC, F-E-R-C. That's the U.S. government federal agencies uh, that, um, that handles enforcement. It's like the CFTC or SEC equivalent. And so many of these examples, so many of these cases are people that are so focused on the rules that they try to manipulate these minute details to their advantage. When I described there's so many different dimensions to, to this volatility that we're 
we're blessed to have because it's just so volatile compared to other things. And you can try to set up intelligent bets in so many different ways, be it spreads or outrights or momentum or short or long, mean reversion, whatever you want. There, there's so many intelligent ways to act within the rules of these markets without being an ass. And so unfortunately, we have a, a small percentage of participants that, um, you know, I I like an arbitrage more more than the average person. But um, in, in our market, sometimes this concept, these concepts get misinterpreted in which people, you know, try to manipulate, if not the actual letter of the rule, then then certainly it's spirit. And so we we actively do not even contemplate it. And this is a conversation that that I have with my guys all the time. Um, we're able to pick and choose our spots and the risk reward that that I mentioned due to this one-sided auction-based market. We get to specify it a la carte as, as we wish anyway. There, there's no need to be reckless in the sense of, oh, okay, like I want to set up a structure in which it is absolutely impossible for me to lose money. Like, no, um, this doesn't this doesn't compute. And so that's that's really to your point like we're we're blessed with enough natural opportunities that it it behooves us to be a good and a responsible participant um these clearinghouse risks these other you know counterparty risks yeah like we we'll bear those in order to be able to to deploy capital into attractive risk adjusted returns and so this this idea of uh you know like we we kind of uh, we operate at the behest of of our government overlords, yeah, I mean that that's true. Um, it's it's at their pleasure that we're allowed to participate in the manner that we participated, and and that's that's kind of the bottom line. That's that's entirely accurate. Well, and and you mentioned the the actual limited capacity uh, that can be deployed as capital that helps smooth out the system, if you will, whether we want to call it arbitrage or whatever. Well, yeah, this liquidity point that Ross made is a very salient point. Um, the, the idea, remember, is that this, this concept of having actively focused participants that are analyzing um, fundamental factors all the time and putting in bids, be it on the supply side, demand side, whether it's long term, short term, we have instruments um, ranging from one day out to three years out. And so this idea of, of completing the market, of providing um, bids in in everything from spread-based things to directional things from short-term to long-term, that's what creates a complete market. That's what creates um, rational price signals. And this is the stated mission of the ISOs. Um, in addition to um, system reliability, which is number one, it's the idea of running um, an efficient electric market with price transparency, with multiple products overlaid that are all you know competitively bid and so that's that's what we strive to do and so that is the liquidity provision aspect that financial participants drive in these markets yeah there's some there's some i'd say of the liquidity of all the markets is in the multiple billions like if not over 10 billion you know in terms of of all these products it depends on on which products you want to include in it but like what, to give you a sense of the scale of it it is still in the multiple billions of dollars um, and it just depends on which slice you want to look at. If you're going into no congestion trading, if you're trying to look at ice, that's a completely separate pie. And I think that's where it could really explode into a much larger number, uh, just because of the daily risk changing hands on that. Uh, but if you look more, I think in just the ISO 
numbers changing hands on the short term, the long term auction trading, you'd be in, you'd easily be in the billions, anyways, like between five and ten billion, yeah. I would think easily. Yeah, but and that, that's a physically constrained market. When you get into the the ice market, now you have that financialization exactly. where exactly. you've got exactly. a bunch of yeah. speculators um, <clears throat> helping, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and that open interest could be anything. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, no, I was just wondering. So, so who's who's typically on this? Is is there a persistent loser, and is it is it the ISO who sort of says I'm going to tolerate a certain amount of um, of losses on our end of the trading, right, so to speak? Yeah. Um, in order to, you know, that's kind of what the the cost of delivering an efficient, reliable market is. Is is that and typically, sort of, I, I think yeah. that is more. I think more opportunity costs than losses. It's yeah. more philosophical because these are not zero sum. These are not like player versus player trades, right? Like these are market completing trades. Um, these are you can call pluses in, in the case of transmission um, revenues. It's a bit more complex. Um, we, we do have different products, some of which are directly zero-sum, but, but the either reallocating surplus revenue or something along those lines. But to, to the, a lot of the generators are granted FTR rates, you know, at, at no cost to them or as part of the contract or the build-up. So they might be selling it, but it might be a profit in their books it's the opportunity cost, the delta of maybe, but they might not be doing the same combination of pairings and different structures. So everybody, that's, that's part of the nuance of the market. It's everybody's looking at it from such a different per- viewpoint and has different goals. And so much of the generators sort of goal is hedging and consistent revenue versus chasing the last 10%. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, I mean, so, we talk about that all the time. Um in terms of commodity producers selling forward, right? It's worth it to them yeah. to sell forward and allow the speculators to earn a premium because mm-hmm. their weighted average cost of capital is so much lower because they've lowered the variability okay. of their earnings. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's a good point. And what Ron's raised in terms of um, the specifics of, let's touch on FTR markets for, for a moment. That's a good example. In, um, in FTR markets, both um, load-serving entities as well as generators receive what are basically grants, um, that is, free allocations of FTRs, which then they come into the auction. Um, you can think about the two-sided liquidity there. So we are on the bid side, and they are on the offer side. And their goal is to maximize the revenue from selling their granted allocated free rights into the auction. And our goal is to try to purchase them as cheaply as possible. And at some point we meet in the middle and we buy everything we want and they sell everything we want Um, on a path by path basis, ultimately over multiple rounds that is achieved. Everyone buys everything, everyone sells everything and we both walk away happy. So the generator doesn't collect revenues directly from customers. They they collect FTRs from the ISO, and the ISO collects the revenues from the. Or am I like way out on a? This is this is no, pretty complex. So the generator primarily yeah. gets paid for generating power, but what they also get are essentially free allocations 
um, based on how much transmission is required from their generation to the nearest load. And so, yeah, like you can think about it as surplus. Like they get these transmission rights for free by virtue of generating power in that direction. And then they wish to monetize those to sell them. Yeah, I don't want to ruin anyone's day that's like signed <laughs> up for like a green electricity contract. It's like, I'm only getting wind power. But guess what? You're not getting wind power. You're getting multiple on the grid. Some yeah. Are, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and fungible. so <laughs> they might allocate a certain amount to, of, of wind or whatever. They might be buying directly from wind farms, but that molecule you're getting could be from anything, you know? So that's kind of one of the funny marketing lies people are allowed to tell. Interesting. So we, we talked a little bit about the consistency of power generation. And there was a question earlier on about why aren't we building more nuclear as, as a base power, right? Do you have any thoughts or comments on that and how it integrates into all of this? And interesting, obviously, the Texas green uh, side of things and then the lagging distribution side. But is there is there you know any insights you guys have into that sort of question? Oh boy, uh, that's a philosophical I, one. It's very, yeah. I'm generally pretty agnostic when it comes to the types of generation. My my slant though is having been a participant and, and witnessed a lot of these um, um, procedures and meetings and ISOs is I really sympathize the most with their focus on reliability. And so I lean very strongly in that direction. I think one of the great ironies with the build out in renewables is that it's been it's been pushed in in some markets the ISO really lines up ideologically with the government of that state like in California for example. Um, in other markets they're independent from each other, but what what tends to happen between economics and ideology is we've gotten the reality is we've gotten a very fast um, ramp up in renewable buildouts. That is wind and solar energy in in these U.S. markets. It's happened in California. It's happened in Texas. It's happening in other regions. And one of the great ironies behind this is that it's been done with the best intentions. It's been done with the intentions of basically <clears throat> um, greening the grid in the sense of reducing the intensity of carbon emissions, but. In reality, what we've witnessed um, in, in our trading weather side, completely ignoring the volatility caused by weather, this push has diminished reliability. That that very primary tenet of, of the ISO itself, maintaining reliability, has been made much more difficult by the penetration of renewables so quickly. Um, the idea of having it be firmed. So firming is a concept in which when you have an interruptible resource, you have an equal dispatchable resource that is available to meet these ups and downs. There's been such a focus on building um, these, um, we call them non-controllable non resources, the renewable resources, without really any any technical, any physical solution um, coming from the firming side, from the reliability side. And so that that's the part that as a, as a very, you know, I want in. Involved I want in. I just connected all the dots. <laughs> I want in. Yeah. I want in now. How do we get in? <laughs> <laughs> that's the opportunity. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. 
it's perverse yeah. incentives. Anyway, keep going, Vlad. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. And so on, on that note, um, when we think of something like nuclear, which is this large, stable baseload resource, it's very much the friend. It should be the friend of renewable resources. It's a big, firm resource, which is there. And you can ramp it. Um, certainly newer you know, nuclear, I'm not an engineer, but I know that it is rampable. You can diminish its output. You can increase its output safely. And, um, and so it would be very good if, you know, in a, in a political way, we took a different attitude in, in the U.S. They took a different attitude to that generation. But in reality, what we've seen with nuclear is that you end up with these enormous cost overruns um, the bureaucracy around it, since you know it has its safety failures in the past, it's so yes. big now. It takes some of these projects that haven't even come online yet have have been under underway for decades. And so, no, I think in reality it's just super complicated. It's very complex. And um, what what is a bit sad is that the the best dispatchable resource, the best firming resource when it comes to pairing with renewables is actually natural gas fired generation. Yes. And, and that, it's relatively clean. And it is relatively quite low CO2 emitting, but ideologically it's it's painted with the same shit brush as coal and all the rest of it. And so I, I think that's very much like a cut off your nose to spite your face type of um, attitude from the people that generate. I think they have good intentions, but yeah, um, in in practice, they've eliminated what are actually some very good sister resources to renewables. Oh, and yeah, yeah, one. and another one just Thank because God I have for a background the profitability in profitability of ATNV. <laughs> <laughs> another one for that because I have the background. Of hydro is another one that just to me continues to be an underutilized resource in the and 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 that's a big one. That's a NIMBY one, right? Not in my backyard. It's flooding planes. It's it, it involves. An, uh, uh, I shouldn't say short term, but an environmental change. You have to alter, uh, uh, create a reservoir. You have to alter the environment behind it. And most people nowadays won't approve it. But when you think about the overall greenness um, and the sort of overall benefit it provides, it's effectively a battery. It's the most effective yes. form of battery storage that we have. Every ounce of water behind the dam that is battery storage and that is long-term battery storage yeah. that's the closest thing that you have it's efficient it's a really basic technology we've literally had it for hundreds of years um, in terms of just using water for creating mechanical purpose so <laughs> i mean it's very proven and um there's some interesting things like if you look at the pacific northwest all of this generation is tends to be politically driven and usually on a federal level and so most of the dams were built you know, from the 30s through the 70s. When was the last time you heard of a new hydrogen built? And this was just part of a U.S. infrastructure build, the highway system, the dams, all these things were built. They're aging infrastructure, but look how well they generally the hydrodams have held up and what they've done oh for God. the whole West Coast, Tennessee uh, Valley Authority. They've done really well with it. Um, and it, to me, it's underutilized. Nuclear was the big thing in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. And to Vlad's point, what happened was it really fell out of favor and people just viewed it as this massive risk. Um, and there's political reasons, there's public relations reasons. And then the thing is the plants have a, a natural life cycle. And at the tail end, it gets very expensive and very risky for those plants. And these are still intended to be profit generating enterprises. 
And as we learned in things like Winter Storm Uri, when a company has the option to spend a few million dollars on winterizing pipelines or fixing things, they tend to take the approach, a lot of them tend to take the approach, I'll deliver the value to the shareholders versus spending the money, unless I'm forced in some other way or you know, there, there's 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 tighter government restrictions. And that's just a sad reality. That's that's you know yeah. actually it's, what's happened in a lot of these plans. It's interesting too when you mentioned that. I, I think of the the what was it the, the is it the the New Deal, the big New Deal? I mean whatever the Hoover Dam was built the green, under that. Oh the, the, yeah, the, yeah. It's the original New Deal. The, the, the original, original New Deal. Deal yeah. right? like, I know yeah. we, we could do a green New Deal now. That would be an interesting thing, but you had Hoover Dam still in operation today, kicking out electrons all day long, storable, yeah. you know. But the 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 um green, I guess in this case, when you're talking about hydro, has a cost, an environmental cost that comes along with the the, the that NIMBY cost that you mentioned, Ross. Where it's yeah. like I, I don't do it to my pond, stream, whatever, dam, and and generate electrons for a hundred years and and continuing. It, it's um, yeah, it's a really interesting set of circumstances that lead to some uh, somewhat perverse outcomes or decisions. Well, look what's at the, the, the natural gas too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, and you look at things like rivers. Oh, sorry, rivers don't tend to stay within one state. So you also have to have interstate agreements. Like who oh. who's upstream, who's downstream. In Canada and the US, for example, Columbia, the C- Columbia River Treaty is one of probably the most important agreements between the two countries. Mm-hmm. And that thing is, that's ripe for like political contention on both sides. <laughs> uh, because basically mm-hmm. Canada controls the Columbia River effectively if they really want to. And what happens if they decide, you know, to go a different way with it? And so... Um, who gets all the benefits, who owns the land, who owns the water. These become really complicated. When you're building a gas plant, you own the land, you get a pipeline in there. It's really straightforward. And so that's where all these issues come from. For natural gas, one of the issues is, um, and I just learned about this recently, but um, depending on the jurisdiction, somewhere between 3 and 9% of the gas leaks out of the pipeline and natural gas methane is about 15 times more powerful from a greenhouse gas impact mm. than carbon dioxide. So it's not like the, the gas burns reasonably clean. I mean, it's still, you know, one of the products of burning natural gas is still carbon dioxide, but that's not the problem. The problem is the, the gas leakage, which mm. is 15 times more destructive from a greenhouse gas standpoint than the carbon dioxide emissions. So um, that's something that I've, I've recently discovered about, about natural gas. It's very, very difficult to, to, to manage that. It is, I mean, this is the dynamic nature of power markets, which makes them interesting. Just pull, pulling it back there is, so you have the gas markets, then everyone's talking about batteries. So batteries are, are is the big conversation in the future. So we're going to build these large-scale batteries. As Vlad said, they have multi-hour, not multi week or month or day capability where are you getting what technology are you using to produce that how much lithium can you find to build these batteries if you're putting them in every car if you're putting them in every solar array if you're doing all this other build out how are you going to accomplish this with with massive electricity grid replacement or or pairing it with every resource every renewable resource it's just there just simply isn't enough of the the raw material in the world the, the other um, thing I think that new technology. Yeah, we're familiar with as Canadians uh, what an open pit mine looks like. 
yeah. And, yeah. And, and the yeah. size of the vehicles and the consumption of petrol, diesel, carbon-based consumption in order to extract that from a monster scar in the earth. I, I kind of, I, I do giggle. And then, the, then we have the tailing ponds to deal with and all that sort of stuff that comes with mining. Anyway. It, it's it, not it it's not giggle worthy. I think it's hypocritical. I think that producing green technology things, be it batteries or panels, is actually extremely carbon intensive, but it's it's not it's not sufficiently well accounted for. We're looking at the emission side of things after something is deployed, but to produce it, it can also be extremely carbon intensive. It's a question of of politics, unfortunately, which one gets accounted for. Yeah. Agreed. And so that's the other major part. Every time you have a political shift at the federal level in the US, like when you went from Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden, you get these massive shifts. And one of the most effective markets is the electricity markets, because you have so many subsidies, so many credits, so much direction on what you're building, where you're going to build it. And then the states protest or they don't protest or they want to roll things back. And somehow the, the grid thankfully survives regardless. Of it, it is, it's crazy. And this is changes, in right? the conversation with you guys. I, w- I mean, it, it was like it, it, in the tweet, like you ever wonder why your fridge runs all the time? Your alarm clock runs all the time. Like the yeah. reliability of the charging for your Apple phone this is a goddamn miracle. And then <laughs> and then you hear about, you know, in the ERCOT sense, how they went and built a bunch of wind turbines and didn't think how that they were going to fully connect that source of electrons to the power grid in order to yes. run those fridges and charge those iPhones. I mean, wow. I'm just, wow. You're right. The it's good a news miracle. is they're going to build it's like 25 gigs of solar now, too, on top of the wind. So In the same area. In the same area. Why would <laughs> so with, with, why without not? power lines? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, Jet, I, I mean, Adam, do you have anything else that you wanted to ask these gents? We no, we covered a lot of ground, so you know, it's yeah. um, let, I, I'd let's love leave to have some for guys. next time. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to have you guys back. I don't know. I I, I think you guys are on LinkedIn. I don't know if you want to be yes. found by anybody, but We're public. I, <laughs> there you go. Right. We like to chat with uh, with friendly folks. Yeah, we're not we're not secret nor hiding. We're just living a quiet island life and are you know generally semi private individuals. Love it. I love it. And and there's there's no. I mean, one other question that came up is: there any other way you can invest in this kind of world of power management um, besides you guys? Obviously, you guys are closed and have the have the uh, the communism capitalism <laughs> version of yeah. co op. Yeah. <laughs> go up <laughs> but not open to investment not really a lot of ways to participate so um it's never um a clear no um our business evolves and it changes our capital needs evolve and change we we've taken a very measured approach like i said a very bootstrapped approach to to growth one that remember going back to this this concept that it's a very difficult to understand, a very humbling, extremely volatile commodity. Ross mentioned, and I want to emphasize that neither of us, um, and not just the two of us, but the rest of our our traders, even though we have, you know, we could have decades of experience in one particular market, um, we quickly come to understand that we're not experts in the other ones. Um, The expertise is so, um, and and ultimately, this best 
self-risk management that comes from, from a trader itself without having to police people from doing silly things. Um, it comes as a result of realizing what you don't know and how specific geographically your knowledge actually is. And so when we grow in this business, um, it's it's ultimately a people business, like I just described. Um, if we want to trade a new region, I have to find somebody so similar to myself in my manner of thinking in order to be comfortable handing you know, millions of dollars in capital and risk to that person. And so, so far, very few have, have made the cut. And so we've had turnover, we've brought people on and let them go. Sometimes after a while, sometimes shortly thereafter, they're, they breeze through the interview process, they seem like geniuses. And then when you actually see and very well credentialed, extremely well credentialed yeah. on paper, brilliant people. And then when you see them in action, you're like, holy crap, no, like this, this person does not share my you know view of how to trade electricity this person is reckless for example or or this person is actually not knowledgeable demonstrably not knowledgeable nor skilled in in this thing of ours and so yeah we we've had those moments i've had those eye opening moments where i'm like holy crap i've committed a terrible error <laughs> <laughs> And so it's not to offend. It's just a statement of fact. We've had, let's call it um, 50% turnover, which which is a fact that personally I'm not happy with because I hire perhaps the most I've ever hired is three persons per year. We, we grow very slowly and deliberately, and I take those decisions with great care. And so the fact that we even have that type of turnover makes me mad at myself, and I want to be more selective <laughs> about how I grow and how I hire and and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, we've shared this philosophy with um, with our our fellow traders. It's slow and steady that wins the race. Nobody's in a hurry here. Um, we, we don't need to bet the farm. We take risks that are well risk adjusted, things that we like and that we understand. And we often bounce ideas off each other. And everyone philosophically, from a risk perspective, is on the same page. Nobody has done of our core group done something where the other people object and say like, wow, this was really crazy. This was really reckless. No, like, in fact, the vast majority of comments that I've provided to, to my core guys that have have now been together for a number of years and gelled into this good team is um, is honestly, most of the time I tell them, I wish I wish you had done more. I, I wish we had done more of that. Um, and that's a problem I would rather have than than the other type of problem in which you're like, Oh wow! Like we didn't we didn't keep a tight enough leash on this <laughs> on this risk on this person, um, and, and so what I'm saying is that growth growth keeps happening for us. Like we keep expanding to new regions and new products, and that comes with capital needs. Now, as a preference, we we happen to self finance that, but that's not that's not a fact for forever. That can easily change as well, and so. Um, typically what happens in our space is people look for equity investments. Um, we've had numerous conversations with people where we've proposed uh, a type of debt structure, a type of credit structure where, <clears throat> where we look to raise capital by way of, of providing a fixed rate of interest. We've had very little um, you know, uptake on things like that. People are, are looking at this more like a venture capital type investment where you, know, you put in a million dollars and you hope to you know, 10x your money or, or that, that sort of thing. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't see a lot of parallels to this is not like a zero to one situation. This is not like a VC. We're not creating a tech startup. It has very little parallels. And so um, 
that's something that I try to be very honest with people. Very, um, but but ultimately, I also understand their perspective. Um, debt you can now get, <clears throat> you know, five percent and and more risk free. And so, why would you lend to us at you know ten or fifteen percent or or what have you? And so that part I I also understand. But to to summarize here, Mike, it's not one of those things where like oh no, like never say never. We're super content with what um, what we have and how we grow. No, I love to talk to people. I love to talk to investors. I love to talk to guys like you. We love to have conversations with people that are in our industry directly or or indirectly. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. All right, well, well put. Uh, what? Why don't we? Well said. Why don't we wrap up there? If you want to find Vlad and Ross, they are on LinkedIn. I don't. Yes, think you Guys are Twitter yet? Uh, nothing like that. I have a really bad Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't keep up to date. I, I'm not going to find. I'm not going to find bad. I'm not going to find bad. I don't know what midgets on it or yeah. whatever. <laughs> any, not to offend any midgets here. Um, and AT, ATNV Energy does it have a website or not really? Is it? Uh, it has a very basic website. It's uh, it's more of just right. the formality so that there's something there on a domain. But it's basically a summary of what what I've said. It's my very low key recruiting pitch, which says that you know we we pay skilled traders really well. ATNVEnergy.com. <laughs> Perfect. Gentlemen, I, I have to thank you. I I have been um, enlightened in so many ways. On I'm so happy on, to hear that yeah, the 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 markets and uh, I mean even since we've we've had a couple of conversations, I, I I marvel when I see a light go on. I'm like it's it's incredibly <laughs> complex the electrification of the world and we didn't get into some of the other things that we talked about. You know, maintenance of the system, these lines that run in certain ways, and people that own them. And yeah, we got pretty um, technical. Yeah, it's it's it, it was amazing. Time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having us yeah. on. I really enjoyed the conversation in person and and online, and I'd like to repeat it. Thank you so Let's much. Do it again. Absolutely. We agree. We shall meet again at the Grand Old House. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can roll the music, Ani. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass.